First, what I hope is a sanitary shock to help us realize the enormity of the struggle we are up against. You've all read the Satan is the God of this age and that the whole world lies in his grip. Note that we are working against a so-called Christian system which does not believe that the teaching of Jesus really matters. This comes from Luther, who said that the Synoptic Gospels don't count for much, but that John is the only really spiritual gospel. And C.S. Lewis, who I remind you, says the gospel is not in the gospels. And then the late Dr. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge Ministries and Dr. O.J. Brown of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Dr. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge Ministries made this amazing statement. He said, many people today think that the essence of Christianity is Jesus' teaching. But that is not so. If you read the Apostle Paul's letters, which make up most of the New Testament, you will see that there's almost nothing said about the teachings of Jesus. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, there's little reference to the teachings of Jesus, and in the Apostles' Creed, the most universally held Christian creed, there's no reference to Jesus' teachings. There's also no reference to the example of Jesus. Only two days in the life of Jesus are mentioned, the day of his birth and the day of his death. And so Christianity centers not in the teachings of Jesus, but in the person of Jesus as incarnate God who came into the world to take on himself our guilt and die in our place. That's from James Kennedy's Truth Notes, entitled How I Know Jesus is God of November 1989. Dr. Harold O.J. Brown said these amazing words about the nature of Christianity. He said, Christianity takes its name from its founder, or rather from what he was called, the Christ. Buddhism is also named for its founder, and non-Muslims, often called Islam or Mohammedanism, but while Buddhism and Islam are based primarily on the teaching of the Buddha and Mohammed, respectively, Christianity is based primarily on the person of Christ, the Christian faith is not belief in his teaching, but in what is taught about him. The appeal of Protestant liberals, says Harold O.J. Brown, to believe as Jesus believed, rather than to believe in Jesus, is a dramatic transformation of the fundamental nature of Christianity. That's from Dr. Harold O.J. Brown's book, Heresies, written in 1984. Dr. James Dunn refers to a colleague scholar, Hurtado, and says that Hurtado does not think it necessary for Jesus to have thought and spoken of himself in the same terms as his followers thought and spoke of him in the decades subsequent to his crucifixion in order for the convictions of those followers to be treated as valid by Christian today. Although James Dunn says that Christians probably think there was some degree of continuity between what Jesus thought of himself and subsequent Christology. That's from the book, Did the First Christians Worship Jesus? Referring to Hurtado's Lord Jesus Christ. But I ask, has Hurtado read the New Testament? On a much better note, Professor Richard Hyers of Princeton University, in his book Jesus and the Future in 1981, said, Interpreters of Christian persuasion have ordinarily not been especially interested in what Jesus intended and did in his own time. 
By the way, did you notice that the creeds leap over the teaching of Jesus and go from born of the Virgin Mary to suffered under Pontius Pilate? Jesus said, look, I have told you in advance. Matthew 24, verse 25. My hope in this presentation is to bring some clarity to the Messiah Jesus' mind on the future. We are to have the mind and spirit of Jesus. According to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, quoting the Septuagint of Isaiah 40, verse 13, mind in Greek is the word spirit in Hebrew here. We have to learn to have that mind. In Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, which are obviously parallel accounts, Jesus gave us what we need to know and understand to face the future with intelligence. These are long discourses of the Master Rabbi Jesus and are never to be relegated to any secondary position as not necessary and essential for us. We are to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, in this case, by the mouth of Jesus, who is God's unique mediator or go-between. Shaliach is the Hebrew word meaning one sent as an agent. As we find in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, 1 John 2 verse 1, where you find the word advocate, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 8, where we find the word spirit. Christian faith and love are based on, derived from, that is, derived from hope, according to Colossians 1, 4-5. If clarity of hope fails, then love and faith dwindle. It's appropriate to start with Matthew and then, of course, to harmonize with Mark and Luke and, of course, Daniel. It is with good reason that we get three corroborating accounts of Jesus and his view of the future and the coming parousia, or second coming. Matthew has just finished telling us that his contemporaries were responsible for killing Abel and all the prophets to the end of the Old Testament period. Matthew 24, verse 23. This should alert us at once to the very instructive corporate and very non-Western way of seeing people in groups bound by a common quality, what the Greek calls a generation, yenea. In this case, evil society or evil generation. Compare with that the evil generation that was Israel in Deuteronomy 32 verse 5 and verse 20. For Jesus, society is an evil brood bent on getting things wrong. This awful condition will persist until the one visible future arrival of Jesus in glory to raise or resurrect the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 23 to catch them up to meet him along with the surviving true believers. 1 Thessalonians 4 16 to 17 and then to inaugurate the political, which is also very spiritual, but political kingdom or empire on the earth. Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18. That's a future society to be renewed by re-education. As we read in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 9, the world will learn righteousness. Jesus said, this generation, this yenea, which will not pass until all the events of the Matthew 24 discourse come to pass. We find that in Matthew 24, verses 34 to 35, it's explained by heavens and earth, that is, the social order, 
See, for example, Isaiah chapter 51, verses 15 to 16. That social order, the present evil social order, will not pass away until all the words of Jesus are fulfilled. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, Jesus explicitly says that no date at all can be put on the parousia, his return. Times and seasons cannot be known. He could easily have told them, if generation means 40 years, I told you, 40 years. But he said nothing of the sort. Then this quotation, Jesus said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit himself? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel of the kingdom, he will save it. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's Mark chapter 8 verses 35 to 38. This society is compared and contrasted with the new society which is coming at the parousia. The people of this age are wiser in relationship to their own brood, or yene'a, than the children of light. Luke 16, verses 8 and 9. Again from Jesus, this generation will not pass until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth, that's to say this present world order, since the flood, will pass away, but my words will not. It does not get any more beautifully clear than that. On that Tuesday of the week in which Jesus went to his ignominious, as the authorities saw it, death at the hands of the church establishment, dying on the 15th of Nisan, a Friday, and at the hands of hostile Roman and Jewish authorities, Jesus walked out of the temple, and in a private lecture to his inner circle of well-instructed students, his disciples, he was asked this, When will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming, parousia, and the end of the age? This is a single question, referring to one climactic event, his second coming to raise the dead at the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 and following. Jesus answered that one question. The parallels in Mark and Luke are not meant to give us something entirely different. They express the same idea as Matthew. As good commentary notes, obviously trouble in the temple and the second coming are closely associated in the question of Jesus' students and by Jesus. The disciples were not wrong to think in this way. They had been well instructed in the prophecies of Daniel, and it was Daniel who had plainly linked the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to, as Mark 13, verse 14, that's to say, in the holy place, Matthew 24, verse 15, in direct connection with a unique time of unparalleled great tribulation. For that, see Daniel 12, verse 1, which is equal to Matthew 24, verse 21. That unique period of great tribulation is never to be confused with the general much tribulation which it is our lot to experience on the journey to the kingdom. Acts 14, verse 22. In the minds of Jesus and his students, there's to be a final and ultimate, unparalleled, unrepeatable time of great 
tribulation, the time of Israel's trouble, or the time of Jacob's trouble. As we read in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the punishment of the end, as Ezekiel 7 calls it, the great tribulation of Revelation 3, verse 10, and 7, verse 14. And I note that Matthew 24, verse 21, is a quotation and reference to Daniel 12, verse 1. The day of the wrath of God's testing punishment on Israel and the world, with the resounding and positive result and happy outcome, that, and I quote here, they will know that I am the Lord. This certainly did not happen in A.D. 70, much less in A.D. 33. Jesus defined the Great Tribulation, Matthew 24, verse 21, by appealing to Daniel 12, verse 1, an event which is just before the death of the final king of the north of Daniel 11. See Daniel 12, verse 45, where we read of his end, the end, that is, of the final king of the north and close to the resurrection of the dead. Daniel 12, verse 2. Habakkuk looked forward to, and I quote, a striking of the head of the household of evil. In Habakkuk 3, verse 13, to lay him open from thigh to neck. I must wait quietly for the day of distress or tribulation for the people to arise who will invade us. Habakkuk 3, verse 16. Another quotation from Habakkuk. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Habakkuk 1, verse 13. Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Daniel is replete with information about the final anti-Christian figure, the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place where he ought not to. Matthew 24, 15, Mark 13, 14, where Mark stresses the word he, showing it's a person, and Revelation 13, 14, where the beast is said to be a who or a he. The abomination represents the ultimate in idolatry. What prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood, Habakkuk 2.18. False views of God, then, and false views of Jesus and of man are a threat to our faith. John had written, You've heard that Antichrist, a single individual in this case, is coming. And that was not wrong. But even then, the spirit of Antichrist was flourishing. 1 John 2, verse 18. It had many exponents, and they presented a non-fully human Jesus. That's to say, one not genuinely human. The Jesus, who is true and genuine, has to come en sarki, in the flesh, as a real human being, not into the flesh, as mistranslated by Luther, where he mistranslates 1 John 4, verse 2. One must, on the other hand, believe strictly and conscientiously in that Jesus. 1 John 4, verse 3, that is the one presented by John, the genuine human descendant of David, son of God, and the Messiah. Luke 1, verse 43, where we read of my Lord, the Messiah, and Luke 
2 verse 11, the Lord Messiah, who's going to be born. And Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, where that second Lord is always a non-human Lord, Adoni in Hebrew, otherwise known as the Messiah Lord, the anointed Lord, certainly not God himself. Failure to grasp the Shema, the hero Israel, remains the greatest threat to good and faithful belief and obedience to Jesus. Micah 4, verses 6 to 8, announces the gospel of the kingdom, when Messiah will rule over Israel in Mount Zion from now on, meaning from then on. This one Messiah will go forth from me, from God, to be ruler in Israel. Details of his birth are from ancient days. He will be our peace when the Assyrian invades the land and tramples on our citadel. That's in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 6. A wicked counselor from Nineveh in Nahum 1, verse 11. And see Psalm 83 for that final ten-nation coalition against Israel. For the Assyrian, please consult the Assyrian in Messianic prophecy at our site, Focus on the Kingdom. Also, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, is quoted in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, what we call the 114-228 connection. With this background and much more, Jesus answered the question about the sign of your parousia and end of the age. The first essential move in right exegesis is to settle on the meaning of the end of the age. This is done by the established method of comparing text with text. End of the age is a fixed datum in Matthew. The harvest is the end of the age. Jesus said in Matthew 13 verses 39 and 40, compare with that Revelation 16, put in the sickle, the close and consummation of the age, the Amplified Bible says. This is the time when the wicked will be burned as tares. This is emphatically not AD 70. There is no such thing as the end of the Jewish age any more than there is an eternal generation of the sun. Where else do we find the end of the age? In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, here again the end of the age is evidently the future coming of Jesus. He promises to be with his faithful followers until the end of the age, clearly his parousia. In all of its five occurrences in Matthew, the end of the age is future to us. Virtually the same expression is found in Daniel 12, verse 13, and it's the moment when Daniel will rise in the future resurrection to obtain his appointed destiny and position of authority as a ruler in the future kingdom. Another excellent and necessary exegetical move is based on Matthew's careful link between the parousia and end of the age. In Matthew 24, verse 3, in the Greek, a single definite article links the two ideas inextricably, the parousia and end of the age. What will be the sign of your parousia and end of the age. The parousia is obviously the future one coming of Jesus, which coincides with the close of the present age. When, a few verses later, Jesus says, the end is not yet, he means, of course, the only end mentioned in the discourse. It's the end just referred to in Matthew 24, verse 3. One cannot possibly switch meanings 
and pretend at the end, tell us, of Matthew 24, 6, is somehow not the end of the age, which is in the immediate context. There are not two ends in Matthew 24, any more than there are two gods or two natures in Christ. We must insist that there's only one parousia, one second coming. Chaos ensues when one is turned into two. That is, there is one God in the Shema. Mark 12, 29. God is one person and not two. Man is a psychosomatic whole, body and soul, and not two distinct parts, body and separable immortal soul. Jesus does not have two natures. Bishop Tom Wright and others are now busy trying to turn the Shema into two by splitting it at 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. Others are busy presenting a double second coming by inventing a false pre-tribulation rapture resurrection. They have stolen the biblical term being caught up or raptured in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and applied it to an invented event seven years before the one actual visible arrival of parousia of the Messiah, which lies in the future. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 15 identifies the catching up of verse 17 as the future parousia. The basis of Jesus' thinking, which must be ours too, is Daniel 9, and the other three references to the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9, 27, 8, 13, 11, 31, and 12, 11. Daniel for 23 impassioned verses, praise for the restoration of the city and sanctuary, which are in ruins. This requires that the goal and resolution of the prophecy, the answer to his prayer, the end of the 490 years, will see the requested restoration of city and sanctuary. AD 70, saw a massive destruction, certainly not restoration, of Israel. To end the 490 years in 33 AD will not work either, because it is 40 years before the other proposed end in AD 70. But AD 70 is emphatically and definitely not the end to which Daniel or Gabriel looked. None of the difficulty arises if we first establish that the end of the age is the future coming of Jesus. The harvest is the end of the age. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 39-40, certainly not AD 70. The saints' faces will shine like the sun in the kingdom at that end of the age, verse 43. None of this is remotely possible in AD 70. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, ties the parousia inextricably to the future resurrection. Any suggestion of a parousia in AD 70 flirts with the mistake of saying that the resurrection has already taken place, 2 Timothy 2.18. The Great Commission guarantees that Jesus will be with us till the end of the age, Matthew 28.19-20. Jesus insists on defining the abomination as the abomination defined already by Daniel. Jesus said, let the reader please understand, Matthew 24, verse 15. All mistakes arise when this fact is ignored and people make up their own version of the abomination.
Daniel 12 verse 11 is critically decisive. For Jesus, the placing of the abomination and the removal of the daily sacrifice will occur 1290 days before the end of the final vision in Daniel 12 verse 11, which ends with the resurrection. Daniel 12 verse 2. 1290 years is obviously a serious mistake, since if it were true, one could then have predicted the resurrection 1290 years in advance of the second coming, which is obviously quite an impossible idea. See my paper on the refutation of the day-year theory. Daniel 9.26 is also entirely decisive. There is first a prediction of the Messiah Prince, the Mashiach Nagid, who arrives after 483 years. He is then cut off in death. That's his crucifixion. Then comes the people of a prince who is to come, who will destroy and ruin the city and sanctuary. The fixed fact about this other prince is that he comes to his end, that's to say his death, in the flood of judgment which ends the prophecy. Daniel 9, 26b and verse 27. This same wicked prince also comes desolating, meshomem in the Hebrew, on the wing of abominations, until he is finally brought to his end by judgment. As the final king of the north, he comes to his end in the land. Daniel 11 verse 45, at a time associated with the unparalleled great tribulation of Daniel chapter 12 verse 1, which is the equivalent of Matthew 24 verse 21. Paul referred to this same final anti-Christian tyrant standing in the temple of God, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. I note that in John 17:12 and 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, the Antichrist, man of sin, and Judas are described with the same words, son of perdition. Compare with this Psalm 55, where Ahithophel's opposition to David is a type of Judas' opposition to Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 50. When speaking of the individual Christian, or the church, as a temple of God, Paul, of course, means the Christian community. He does not introduce the idea by speaking of the temple when he refers to the church or an individual Christian, but he refers to them or us as a temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, the natural meaning of the temple is a real building. The people of the prince who is to come, who desolate city and sanctuary, in Daniel 9, verse 26, is positively not Jesus using the Roman armies in AD 70. The Romans were never the people of Jesus. Such a false reading would turn Jesus into the Antichrist. In other words, kala v'nechetza, meaning final and decisive end. There's a further hub of connected texts in the very rare expression, the decisive and final end, the kala v'nechetza of Daniel 9, verse 27. This phrase is cited by Daniel from Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 to 23, and again in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 22, in connection with a covenant of death in verse 18. In each case, the future day of the Lord is the context. Then in Romans 9, verses 27 to 28, 
Paul cites from Isaiah chapter 10, verse 23, the same final end of the age event as the future time when a remnant of now blinded Israel, what we call Jews, will come to salvation. At that time, all Israel will be saved. Romans 11, verses 25 and 26. This will not happen until the full quota of Gentiles has come in. Until that time, Paul describes Jews, Jews that is contemporary with him, as enemies of the gospel. Of course, Paul went out to convert now as many as would listen to him. In Matthew 23, verses 35 to 36, Jesus had just announced to his enemies that they had killed all the righteous, starting with Abel. This is the corporate thinking which dominates the mind of Jesus. You killed Abel, he says to the hostile group standing in front of him, in the same way he could look at the buildings in front of him and announce any future destruction of them. Yes, we know that the buildings were ruined in AD 70, but what Jesus goes on to describe is a desolation and ruin connected with the future Great Tribulation, which Jesus calls days in which it will be very severely difficult for pregnant and nursing women. Mark 13, verses 17 to 19. That cannot be a prolonged period of thousands of years. It cannot be AD 70, because immediately after, Matthew 24, 29, immediately after that very great time of great tribulation, there will follow cosmic signs, and then the spectacular visible arrival of Jesus. AD 70 is not the Great Tribulation. It cannot be a time spanning millennia, and it cannot be a brief time in AD 70. The Great Tribulation has to be followed immediately by cosmic signs and the Second Coming, according to Matthew 24 verse 29. Jesus is offered one question which embraces the end of the age and his coming again. Matthew 24 verse 3. Granted that his prediction includes the obvious reference to a destruction of the temple, the fact that a destruction of the temple occurred in AD 70 must not be allowed to undermine the equally clear fact that trouble in the temple is associated with the parousia. The sequence which appears in all three accounts of the Lord's presentation is very clear. Firstly, various general signs, famine and war and persecution. Secondly, the appearance of the person of the abomination standing where he ought not to, in a holy place. Thirdly, the onset of the one unparalleled and thus unique time of severe trouble found in Daniel 12, verse 1. Close to the future resurrection in Daniel 12, verse 2. Immediately following Matthew 24, 29, immediately, that is, straight away, following that definite final unparalleled tribulation, Heavenly signs in the sun and moon will introduce the spectacular and visible arrival of the Messiah as in Acts 1 verse 11 and Acts 3 verse 21. Every attempt to divide this information between two events, that's to say AD 70 and the yet future parousia, have failed as is shown by the complete and chaotic disagreement among commentators as to where to place the divide. As an extreme and obviously failed attempt, 
I mentioned the book by Kimball on the Great Tribulation, in which he places the Great Tribulation in AD 70, and then says that the signs in the heavens which follow immediately refer to nearly 2,000 years of political disturbance. The vast majority of commentary has rightly not imagined heavenly signs as being prolonged for nearly 2,000 years. So they try this move. They say that the Great Tribulation in Jesus' mind began in AD 70 and has been going on continuously for nearly 2,000 years to be followed immediately, Matthew 24, 29, by cosmic signs and the visible arrival of Jesus in power and glory. But this solution fails on the simple basis that Jesus described the days of the Great Tribulation as days which will call for immediate flight from Jerusalem and days in which it will be impossibly difficult for pregnant women and those nursing babies. Mark 13, verses 15 to 20. Hence it is entirely appropriate for us to say, as we enter, say, Olive Garden for a special celebration, or as we look at a dessert-laden table at a church potluck, we say, this is not the Great Tribulation. Daniel 9, verses 24 and 27, looks like this in the Hebrew. Translations have often not allowed you to hear the text. See at our site, focusonthekingdom.org, the article on Daniel 9, 26b. Here is what the Hebrew says. From the going forth of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the appearance of the Messiah, seven weeks and 62 weeks shall pass away. The city shall be restored and built up amid the oppressions of the times. But after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, so that to him nothing remains. And the city, together with the sanctuary, shall be destroyed by the people of a prince who will come, who will find his end in the flood. But the war shall continue to the end, since destruction is irrevocably decreed. That prince will force a strong covenant for one week on the mass of the people, and born on the wings of idle abominations, he shall carry on a desolating rule till the firmly decreed judgment will pour itself upon him as one desolated. That translation is partly based on the commentary by Kyle and Delich. Moses Stewart on Daniel 9, 26b. The words Vekizo and his end, and we ask the question, whose end? The obvious grammatical answer is the end of the coming prince, the Nagid Haba, the prince to come. One has only to compare chapter 8, verse 25, he shall be broken in pieces without human hand, and join this with 11.45 of Daniel, and he shall come to his end, and none to help him, for en ozerlo, in order to see how exactly all three of the passages agree. In all, the end in question follows the injuries done to the holy city and the temple. Manifestly, the same personage is concerned. We cannot therefore refer his end, Kizo, to the city and sanctuary, for the suffix should then be plural, nor to he will ruin, as to say the action of destruction, which ends in overflowing. Indeed, such an application would probably never have been thought of had not that interpretation needed its aid, which makes Titus 
the Roman chief to be the Nagid or prince in this case, who is to destroy city and sanctuary. But such a construction is incompatible with grammar and equally so with the parallel passage to which reference has been made above. Kyle is equally clear, whose translation we quoted in part just above. We quote Kyle's comment here. The Nagid Haba, the prince to come, who destroys the city and sanctuary, whose end will be with the flood, consequently cannot be the Messiah, but is the enemy of his people and of the kingdom of God, who shall arise in the last time. Daniel 7, verses 24 and 25. In the following phrase, and his end with the flood, the suffix refers simply to the hostile Nagid or prince, whose end here is emphatically placed in contrast to his coming. So also says Kranichfeld, Hoffmann, and Kleefoot. Preconceived ideas, says Kyle, as to the historical interpretation of the prophecy lie at the foundation of all other references. The messianic interpreters who find here a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans and thus understand by the prince Titus cannot apply the suffix his to the prince Titus. Some therefore refer the suffix his end to the city and sanctuary but that is inadmissible since the city is feminine. Others refer the his end to the masculine sanctuary only, but the separation of the city and the sanctuary is quite arbitrary. Others, like Hengstenberg, refer the suffix to the idea of ruining. On the other hand, von Lengerke and Kleefurt have rightly objected to this view. They say this reference of the suffix his end is inadmissibly harsh. The author must have written erroneously since he suggested the reference his end to the masculine singular people or prince. One cannot imagine what is meant by end of the destruction since the destruction itself is the end. There remains therefore nothing else than to apply the suffix his end to the prince. Ketz, or end, can therefore accordingly only denote the destruction of the prince. The prince will find his end in his warlike expedition, the people of a prince who shall come and find his destruction in the flood. That's from the commentary by Kyle on Daniel. Other translations have agreed, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one put to death, city and sanctuary ruined by a prince who is to come. The end of that prince will be catastrophe, and until the end, there will be war and all the devastation decreed. That's Daniel 9, verse 26, from the New Jerusalem Bible. For our German readers, here is the Einheitsübersetzung of 1980. Ecumenique de la Bible in 1988. Quant à la ville, the prince to come will destroy them, but his end will come. Then the Bible en français courant of 1997, translation. However, this ruler will come to his end. Jesus, in Luke 21, verse 24, tells us that Jerusalem will be trodden down until the times of the Gentiles are completed. 
The treading down of Jerusalem is based on the Septuagint of Zechariah 12, verse 3, where we read, It will come to pass in that day that I will make Jerusalem a stone trodden on by all the nations. Everyone who tramples on it will utterly mock at it, and all of the nations will be gathered against it. Jesus resumes the same subject exactly in Revelation 11, verses 2 to 3, where we read, Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, because it's been given over to the nations, and they will tread it underfoot for 42 months. This is 1260 days, as in verse 3, the second half of the final seven, or period of seven years, of Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27. This shows how Jesus, our rabbi, reads the last seven, or period of seven years, of Daniel 9. It is future, at the time of the two witnesses, whose two corpses finally lie in the street in Jerusalem. Israel says, and I quote, Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a short time. Our adversaries have trodden it down. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 18 to 19. Isaiah chapter 64, verses 10 to 12. And Psalm 74. Zechariah 13, verse 8 and 9. And Zechariah 14, verses 1 and 2, speak of a future time of invasion and extreme trouble for Israel. Through this punishment, a remnant will repent and welcome the Messiah at his return. This will be the moment described by Jesus in Matthew 23, verse 39. You will see me and say, Blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord God. The you there is corporate you, you and all who belong to you.